This is the current federal tax developments for the week of September 7, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. This week, we're going to talk about some very limited developments because, again, we're coming into the Labor Day weekend this week. And we also, at the end of August, Congress was coming back here in the near future. But essentially, things are still kind of on the not much happening area currently as Washington waits to get back into doing things. But we do have a couple of things there for one development I'll talk about this week, which just makes a program permanent that we've worried about in the past that we discussed beginning last year when the IRS began accepting a varied assortment of electronic signatures for certain forms that had to be filed on paper. And we'll talk about how the IRS has now kind of quietly made this program permanent in addition to expanding the number of forms it will accept. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Since that was really the only major development of, you know, let's say general import that occurred last week, I also wanted to spend some time this week uh, talking about an issue that's kind of come up in a different context a while back here. We want to look at when we're analyzing, especially now that we're considering we may be seeing brand new law in. Remember, we are looking now, Congress is working on the budget resolution, which has the $3.5 trillion plan uh, that would have a number of tax provisions attached to it. Not much is attached to the bipartisan spending program, aside from the rules that would relate to cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, and the reporting there, and that's obviously got a lot of attention, and shortening up the employee retention credit uh, to basically have it stop as of the end of September, except for recovery startup businesses. There's not really a whole lot else tax-related in that bipartisan bill that we supposedly will get a vote on by September 27th in the House, but there could be a bunch of things that come up in the larger bill. There are a lot of proposals there. Now, what we don't know right now is how you take that list of proposals and figure out what's likely to be in a final bill or if there even will be a final bill. So we're way too early in the game to spend time on this program talking to you about what's in that bill. But we are going to, you know, get ready and try to figure out, maybe get everybody prepared for how one looks at a bill like that, especially one that's going to have very possibly some very new sections, new areas of the law that we're going to have to interpret, likely without a whole lot of IRS guidance for the first few months, yet it may still impact what people do. So we'll talk a little bit about the proper method of analyzing uh, tax law issues and why it's important to start with code and the primacy of what the courts look for called unambiguous text and why that becomes the primary goal and why we have to work from there. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well this week, just because otherwise it's a very quiet week. So let's start with a real development this week. And that's going to be the IRS published a fact sheet on their website. It was entitled Details on Using E-Signatures for Certain Forms, Fact Sheet 2021-12. And they posted it on Wednesday, September 1st. That's when it went live on their website. Now, if you remember this from last year as part of the COVID pandemic, the IRS announced in a memo last year, essentially, that 
they were going to begin accepting various forms of electronic signatures on a small number of forms that had to be filed on paper. And we got to the initial list, probably the big thing there was if you had one of these monster 706s, you know, that is a, you know, that goes in in a giant box and it has to be filed on paper. And traditionally, you know, clients would go to whoever was preparing the estate tax return, be it a CPA, EA, attorney, and would do the signing there on that massive document, which would then be, you know, sent out via the postal mail, certified mail, all that stuff. Well, obviously, when we're talking about the pandemic and COVID, especially older clients, and last year as COVID got started and it appeared to mainly cause huge problems, like it was far riskier the older you were getting COVID, it appeared last year. So your clients who just lost a spouse you know, and who themselves are in their 80s, was probably not really keen on coming down and meeting with the attorney or CPA. At least a chunk of them weren't. And so we were looking for some way to let them sign the form without us having to, you know, just send the whole big block of junk and tell them they had to go out to the postal service, you know, and post it themselves, which also they didn't want to do because, you know, that seemed to be highly risky to be standing there in the post office trying to get certified mail done. So, you know, we had this little problem. So last year, the IRS started this. Now, the program was first put in for a short period of time. It's been interesting with COVID how, you know, the, the assumption had been for quite a while that, well, it was going to only last a few weeks. And then things just have kept extending on these programs and these issues. So like everything else with COVID, Instead of being a short-term quick issue, it got extended out twice as the basic problem continued. And to be honest, there's another side to this. Ignoring the pandemic, you know, many of us really would prefer to be able to use this kind of electronic signatures rather than having to, you know, start moving paper forms over to the client who signs it with pen and ink and then has to either post them themselves or you know, it comes back to whoever is going to take it to the post office for it. So this allows us to use this type of format. And it does. The key issue is the electronic, you know, this one deals with electronic filing. You know, we're going to talk about this, I should say. There are a number of things here, but one of the key items in this list, and we'll go through the list of what counts, but you'll find in this list is every form of e-filing, electronic filing authorizations is in this list. They're all contained in one line. They talk about the series of forms, all which basically contains all of the electronic filing authorization forms. And it also includes, as I said, not just individuals who already we, we could accept electronically, uh, that was already there, but included entities, which the IRS had ruled a couple of times, that essentially nothing, the IRS had never authorized using anything but a wet signature for authorizing the filing of an entity return. And as we discussed earlier this year, it, you know, the IRS basically doesn't have to accept signatures 
in a form that they have not specifically authorized. Yes, Congress said years ago the IRS was to, you know, start working on regulations to accept electronic signatures, but they've only done so in a very restricted area for a small number of forms, meaning that it was at least risky for a e-filing preparer to accept a signature form that maybe, let's say, for a corporation, S-corporation, C-corporation, partnership, whatever it might be, to have accepted the authorization when the client maybe just type the, you know, type their name for the officer's name is signing on an authorization form, or they went in an acrobat and just kind of, you know, did that image of a signature and pasted it as a stamp, you know, various, there was real problems that that might not count if the service came in to examine the paid preparer that might not count as having evidence of authorization to file. So, that was a little bit issue. The other problem, while we could accept that for individuals, you may also remember that it required you to have knowledge-based authentication. In essence, your clients had to answer a set of questions. Whoever was doing the signing had to answer a set of questions that would enable that would allow them to prove that they were the actual person signing this document. So, you know, you had to ask those trivia questions about various things from public records or from credit bureaus to prove that, you know, you were the real person, things supposedly only that person would know. And that was true even if it was a client that you had been working with for 50 years. And, you know, they they were just signing this document and you just, you still had to have that specific proof. Even if you had other very, you know, strong proof that that was really the person that executed it, it didn't matter. You had to have the KBA stuff to make it go. But this particular notice does not mention KBA, and that's what makes it kind of interesting. So let's talk about what the IRS has put in this program. The IRS said that essentially, and they say to help reduce the burden on the tax community, the IRS allows taxpayers to use electronic or digital signatures on certain paper forms they cannot file electronically. The agency is balancing the e-signature option with critical security and protection needed against identity theft and fraud. Understanding the importance of electronic signature has the tax community, the IRS offers an overview by using them on certain forms. The IRS had said the last time they extended this program that they were considering, you know, just making the program permanent. It appears that's what this fact sheet has now done. Now, the first thing I was talking about in the fact sheet is, okay, what exactly would count as electronic signature? And it says they will accept a wide range of electronic signatures and goes on to give the list of signatures that, for example, would be considered acceptable. Now, these acceptable signatures that are listed in the program or in the yeah, for the program includes a name that is just typed in the signature block. So your client could literally just bring it up, type their name in either just bring it up in Acrobat and do an edit function and just type text, add text to the form, or maybe type it onto, you know, you could put the form field in there 
they just type it in an Acrobat, that could be considered to be a valid signature. You know, their name, their date typed in. Also, they said a scanned or digitized version of the signature. So in this case, the client would just sign the form, scan the form, and then send that on to you or digitize, you know, whatever form they did, you know, pictures, JPEGs, all those sorts of things are perfectly acceptable. A handwritten signature on an electronic signature pad. If your office has people come in to sign, you could just basically have an iPad or something there with a stylus. And, you know, they, they could sign on to that. That would be considered a valid electronic signature. And they said, similarly, that would be a handwritten, and that would be, you know, I said the iPad. The, I guess the first one's considering a specific piece of hardware that does nothing but accepts that. Because the second one said a handwritten signature mark or command input on a display screen with a stylus or a device. So we could do any of that. As well, signatures created by third-party software work for this as well. Now, the acceptable formats, file formats that you can accept electronically. Now, this one is kind of interesting. They do say that they don't specify the technology, right? You must use to capture electronic signature. But then they go on to tell you what they'll accept, which is kind of like, well, we won't ex we'll accept. Yeah, we're not going to specify, but we'll accept these. So just like the list of valid signatures, which you're probably going to want to work from because you have proof those are considered acceptable under this program, my guess is these file types will also be what you'll want to use. And those file types, the IRS listed as saying acceptable file formats are common types supported by Office 365. Yes, that means Microsoft Office 365 formats are what we're referencing. And specifically, though, they said they would accept a TIFF file, which is what some scanners do, uncompressed scan files, uh, various JPEG formats. Those are what you get. I know usually you hate when you get them, but they are most often what you get when a client, you know, takes a picture with their uh, phone of a document and then sends that back into you somehow. That's often a JPEG. Okay. Also PDF, so if the client does, you know, put that signature on a PDF or you keep it on a PDF, that'll be good. As well, anything in the Microsoft Office suite, which is kind of repetitive because Office 365 is basically that, but they do say that, or zip. And zip really isn't a signature form, but you're allowed to put them in zip files to guess what they're saying. Now, one type missing from this is the HEIC which is kind of weird because there's actually two versions here. It describes, it's one of the two options in a generic, what's called high-efficiency image format version. And HEIC is the format now used since iOS 11 for iPhones to store pictures and to transmit them. The big problem with this, first thing is that version, that file format's not listed here because officially it's not directly supported by Office. It's also, as I'm sure some of you discovered this past year, when clients started, or the past couple of years, when clients started sending you files in this format, is Windows doesn't have a really good way to read it. Yes, there are some readers out there. There are some ways to do it, uh, but it's not necessarily the simplest one to do. 
Now, a client who has an iPhone can change the default or can change the formats, you know, can get format stuff, et cetera, on the phone. But generally, let's face it, if a client, a client who doesn't know enough to use the scanning option in their smartphone, which exists on an iPhone in the Notes app, which exists under Android, under Google Drive, I admit that's, you know, those are both probably not the first places people would have looked for them. But if they don't know enough to use that, they're probably not going to know enough to go into settings, deep into settings, and change from whatever HEIC is to JPG or JPEJ, JPEG, I should say, JPEG. So, yeah, that's, that, that's the problem. Um, most likely what you're going to want to do, if you do receive something from a client in that format, you can try to ask them to send it in something else. But again, that's likely to go not very far. Or secondly, you're going to have to get something in Windows. And I believe there are some add-ons that will let Windows image programs, uh, you know, the ones that ship with Microsoft Windows, pick that up in the Microsoft App Store. And then use that to, let's say, print to PDF to get a format that the IRS will find acceptable that we use for that. But understand that that format, which is not technically accepted, if the picture is sent in JPEG, which currently is the default for most Android phones, Samsungs and other Android phones, uh, those will generally be fine. You can use those formats. The iPhones will cause you a bit of a problem, just saying as it is. Now, the other big thing in this is this form gives us a list of forms. And we've got the full list. I've got them on slides here. But we've also got this full list uh, we're going to put them here. They're in the document. If you download this week's document, we have the full list. Also, you probably want to keep going to that IRS page because I have a feeling they're going to be adding to this list over time. One thing to remember, as I said, this does not contain any form that can be e-filed with the IRS. If the form can be, so you cannot use this to sign a 1040. Because a 1040, you know, first thing is it's not on the list. That's probably the most important thing to remember. But number two, it's not likely to ever end up on the list. Because a 1040 can be filed using the IRS e-file program. And that is what the IRS is going to demand you use if you try to file electronically. You know, try to file via electronic mechanism. So what can you use? And there are a few important ones. And a number of these are very obscure. But let's start looking at what the set includes. Well, the set includes uh, Form 11C, Occupational Tax and Registration Return for Wagering. Form 637, the application for registration for certain excise tax activities. Form 706, this is the big one we've had for a while on this list. U.S. Estate and Generation Skipping Transfer Tax Returns. We also have a bunch of documents of returns related to the 706 and includes the 706a the u.s additional estate tax return it has to go along with this the 706 gsd generation skipping transfer tax return for distributions 706 gsd-1 notification of distribution from generation skipping trust 706 gst generation skipping transfer tax returns for terminations and the 706 QDT, the U.S. Estate Tax Return for Qualified Domestic Trust. Form 706 Schedule R1, the Generation Skipping Transfer Tax. Form 706 NA, the U.S. Estate and Generation Skipping Transfer Tax Return. 
706, as we say that, 730, monthly tax return for wagers, um, Form 1066, which is U.S. income tax return for real estate, mortgage, investment conduits, Form 101120C, the U.S. income tax return for cooperative associations, Form 1120FSC, U.S. income tax return of a foreign sales corporation, 1120H, U.S. income tax return for a homeowner association. I know there are probably a few of you that have that form. Yes, you can now have the HOA officer sign the document uh, via using DocuSign or whatever other type it in on the form uh, method you want to if you want to do that and have it then and then mail that in instead of the wet signature form. Form 1120 ICDISC. The Interest Charge Domestic International Sales Corporation Return, 1120L, U.S. Life Insurance Company Return, 1120ND, Return for Nuclear Decommissioning Funds and Certain Related Persons, 1120PC, the Property and Casualty Insurance Company Tax Return, 1120RET, REIT for the uh, Real Estate Investment Trust, the RIC for Regulated Investment Companies, Form 1120RIC, Form 1120SF for settlement funds under 468B is part of it. Form 1127, application for extension of time of payment of tax due to undue hardship. Form 1128, application to adopt, change, or retain a tax year. Form 2678, the employer payer appointment of an agent. Uh, Form 3115, change of accounting method. That's also a useful form. So, you, you know, that's one that would probably be useful there to send the that's normally going to be your second copy to the IRS office. The the other one to the return can be electronically attached to the actual tax return. So doesn't really say you can't use one on a paper return that's e-signed. But if you're going to e if you're going to basically going to have to pay, you know, wet sign the regular form 1040, I'm not sure why you wouldn't you'd want to e-sign the 3115, but apparently you could. Form 3520, annual report, annual return to report transactions with foreign trusts and receipt of certain foreign gifts. The form 3520A, annual information return of a foreign trust U.S. owner. Form 4421, the declaration, executors, commissions, attorneys, fees. The Form 4768, application for extension of time to file a return and or pay U.S. estate generation skipping transfer taxes. Form 8038, I should say, information return for tax-exempt private activity bond issues. Form 8038G, information return for tax-exempt government bonds. Uh, Form 8038GC, information return for small tax-exempt government bond issues, leases, and installment sales. The non-cash contribution form, this one can be very helpful, especially end of tax season. Form 8283 to get the charities, nobody else to sign off on the document timely. Form 8, now this is the big one, the 8453 series, 8878 series, and 8879 series. These are IRS e-file signature authorization forms. Anything in those series uh, can be done using this method. So that could greatly simplify your ability to accept electronic filing documents by using something like DocuSign, etc. And as I noted, nothing here said you had to use KBA. Now, you still have a standard requirement under the law in any event when filing a return to have taken certain steps to, you know, get yourself comfortable that the person in question is 
first, a real person? And secondly, is he actually the person they claim to be? So that's always been true for the taxpayers. You know, at least that's always been true. You had to establish that for your clients. So that would be it. But I presume the IRS now has come to the conclusion that we had a tax court case earlier this year that talked about the same thing, you know, where it said that, look, essentially, you know, when they, you know, we don't really need to have this authentication if the advisor had already done the authentication. That that was a case with a rejected e-file and whether it actually had been, whether that counted as a signed return. And because it had been rejected, the IRS tried to argue, well, it hadn't been signed. And the tax court disagreed, saying, nope, it meets all the requirements. You didn't really define signed in this context. And the IRS was defending it, saying, well, it has to go through the authentication. And it hadn't. And the court said, well, you know, the advisor, the, you know, the e-filing, the e you know, which is like, you know, the uh, advisor doing the e-filing had to establish the identity of his or her client. So bottom line. You know, that seemed good enough. It appears the service may not be accepting that view in this regard, so not having to do this. Uh, the Form 8802 application for U.S. Residency Certification, 8832, the empty classification election, and Form 8971, information regarding a beneficiary acquiring property from a decedent. And then finally, Two things, Form 8973, Certified Professional Employer Organization, Customer Reporting Agreement, and any elections made under 83B. So if your client is making an 83B election, that election can be signed electronically, copy sent to the IRS with the electronic signature, copy to the, you know, to the employer to give that background. So we don't need to worry about any of those other documents. So it's interesting in that regard. So we get both of those things in there. Now, the other thing I want to talk about this week, we talked about that long thing, but I want to give you a bit in a few minutes here, a quick primer on the key issue for interpreting the code, interpreting law. And as I say, we are likely, well, I don't know if we're likely, but let's say there's a reasonable chance we will get new text. And if we do, it'll probably be fairly significant somewhere this month, maybe next month, who knows how quickly it comes. But if it does, we're going to be faced with a period, just like with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, where that new material is, where that new law is out there, but IRS guidance is not yet available. And again, if it passes the end of September, there's a reasonable chance we hit the beginning of January when clients may have to actually be making decisions based on this law, and potentially even some things making decisions the minute it's passed where the only thing we're going to have to guide us will be the law and potentially committee reports. Again, not guaranteed we'll get committee reports, not guaranteed what they'll tell us. So let's talk about how we deal with that situation. And this is coming across from a couple of issues. We had a discussion about this vaguely. I've had a lot of back and forth discussions with those 2021-49 that was issued on, you know, that was issued that came out, you know, and talked to us about you know, what exactly was going on with the no living relative rule for a control owner of a corporation for purposes of the employee retention credit. There was a lot of back and forth there, a lot of discussion before those came out and discussion afterward. And I think we have to consider this question when we're going to analyze that. Or is your argument good? 
We also discussed actually back in 2016 and 2018, the case of CRI Leslie LLC versus commissioner, which in, in 2016 was a tax court case, 147 TC number eight, and was later affirmed on appeal by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, 882 F3rd 1026. And that was in 2018, early 2018. And then I want to discuss with you what's a really nice summary of this issue found in the U.S. Supreme Court case, which is important because that's considered binding, of Connecticut National Bank versus Germain, not a tax case, but a 1992 Supreme Court case, 503 U.S. 249, with a discussion we're going to be involved with here on pages 253 to 254 of that source for this particular issue. And what we're going to talk about here is we've hit this before. We actually did in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act very heavily, but we hit it in other laws as well. What happens if, okay, we have a law passed and what we'll probably have available will be the actual text of the law and we may have various committee reports. Now, the hitch is the committee reports generally are meant to be used by us you know, and people will say, well, that's congressional intent. Well, let's talk about this issue. What if congressional intent, as clearly expressed, and let's, you know, the most obvious one I'll talk about here shortly is going to be qualified improvement property under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act as originally passed, where congressional intent very clearly stated in the committee reports was totally at odds with the law they passed. How do you deal with that situation? And we're going to tell you how you deal with it by the simple rule that one always starts with text. And if the text answers the question, the pure text of the law answers the question, that is, there is it's an unambiguous answer, and we know it's the case, then we follow that, right? And this came up a lot when we had discussions about uh, notice 2021-49, and even prior to its prior to its issuance, right? And a real problem I've run into is when I've discussed it afterwards with some people, and I've had some people contact me. I've had other things go on, and people, you know, who are, you know, either saying maybe saying that 2021-49 and the no living relative rule is invalid, and Okay, we, we could discuss that. I will be blunt that I don't really buy that theory, but ignore that because I don't set the rules. No, nobody who does CPE or does these sessions sets the rules. Nobody doing a YouTube video or a CPE course or any of those things set the rules. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court, the lower courts are there for. They are involved in telling us ultimately how the law applies. You know, but when we get to the discussion, unfortunately, and I haven't found this with other CPE promoters, uh, you know, CPE speakers I've heard on this, some of whom who are trying to argue that it's, you know, 21, 2021-49 is invalid. You know, they don't tend to violate this precept, but I think a lot of people listening to them start going this as their own justification. The problem is any, any tax professional for your own purposes and for defending yourself against prepare penalties under 6694 and defending your clients for 6662, if it's an income tax issue, for the substantial understatement penalties, you have to consider, you know, 
whether or not the item has sufficient support, substantial authority, or reasonable basis. And you have to do so by considering specific sources that are allowed and considering their relative strengths. And there is a very straightforward approach the courts are using. And you need to understand it. So as soon as somebody starts talking to me and says, oh, 202149 is wrong, and you say, okay, why? Well, Congress, you know, the congressional intent was otherwise. And that, frankly, is too early in the discussion to raise that. Because that you that's not an issue to be raised until we clear one hurdle, which the Supreme Court has made very clear they expect you to clear. And that hurdle is, we're going to talk about what happens if the language of the statute passed by Congress leads to a single unambiguous result or leads, you know, basically answers the question. So if the question being posed is answered by the statute, it doesn't matter what congressional intent says. Absent a very, 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 and I mean very narrow exception called the monstrous rule exception. And even then, you're going to find it very difficult because as the court's going to say, we talk about a case here in just a second, the mere fact the result is odd does not make the result monstrous. Congress can pass dumb laws all the time. They seem to want to prove that regularly. Congress can pass laws with absurd results all the time. And I say that even though they'll kind of call this the absurd rule sometimes. But when they say absurd under this thing, as the court notes, we're talking about a monstrous result uh, that, you know, there is no way this could ever, 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 ever be a result that makes any sense whatsoever. Not just one that doesn't appear to make sense in terms of, and you know, it is, I guess, the best way to phrase it, absolutely, totally contrary to what we're trying to get to, and just totally contrary. And you could never imagine this being a result of a law like this, which is very, very rare to have that. Now, the CRA Leslie case, like I said, was considered back in 2016 and 2018. And the issue was kind of interesting. And a plain reading of the text in this question of the law was, as even the 11th Circuit admitted, was clearly at odds with what the congressional reports were saying was the intent of the law in a specific circumstance. But the plain reading was at odds with that. If the plain reading of the law is at odds with what you might find even clearly expressed congressional intent, absolutely not inferred, because I hear a lot of people give me inferred congressional intent. It's like, okay, well, where does where did Congress say that? Oh, well, obviously they intend. It's like, well, obvious, obviously they intended translates to, I have nothing to back this up, so I'm winging it. No, I, if it's obvious, they'll say it, right? We need them to say it for it to be intent, because they definitely said the law. So, like I say, I, I don't accept that. Well, obviously that's not what they meant. You know, no, it's not so obvious. You know, if it's obvious, they would tell us what they meant. We need to know that. We're not mind readers. So we have to go with that. That's a little different. 
But as I said, if the law is at odds with the rule. The issue here in the case of C.R.A. Leslie dealt with a special rule found at 1234 Cap A of the Code. And it deals with something that actually probably have all dealt with if you never really thought about 1234 Cap A. But the idea is, generally, if I have a gain or loss, you know, gains and gains are normally ordinary income. However, if that gain is from the sale or exchange of a capital asset, then I am considered to have a capital gain or loss. Now, a sale or exchange of a capital asset, first thing is the asset in question must be capital, as defined at 1221, and we must sell it. Must have a sale of the asset. Now, the problem is sometimes we have rights related to that asset for which we receive a payment. In the case in question, we are talking about a payment received by a business for to, to give a potential buyer an option to acquire an asset that was used in the trader business. Okay, that was the deal. Now, this was the case of, it was commercial real estate. It was a building. So they had an option to acquire a building that was being used in the trader business. There's actually a hotel. And the problem is, well, generally, of course, that rule would say, well, that's ordinary income because, you know, you're receiving that when the when the right expired, uh, you would have to recognize as an ordinary income. But 1234A says, if the asset in the asset to which the right relates to is itself a capital asset, any gain or loss related to the rights, but not a sale or exchange of the asset, will be treated as a capital gain or loss. Now, the taxpayers said, well, you know, had we sold the hotel, it had been a nice big gain. That gain would have been taxed under 1031's rules. And 1031 would mean, you know, for almost all of our partners, because it's a pass-through entity, that that would be a tax that would be imposed at the low, you know, at basically the capital gains tax rates. It'd be a capital gain or loss. So they were saying, well, when we got this, let's say, million dollar option payment, and you know, the holder of the the guy who paid the option lets it expire, well, that should be a capital gain because of 1234 Cap A. And the committee reports actually were pretty much in line with that. You know, they used examples of cases where that had a different result. And it was assets clearly that were 1231 assets, right? I should have said 1031 earlier. It should be 1231. 1231 assets. And we know quite often 1231 assets, I mean, they confuse everybody, right? Uh, but pe people treat them as if, you know, they're capital gain assets, right? Quasi-capital gain. Now, you should all know that in reality, 1231 assets are not capital gain assets, right? Right? They, they don't generate capital gains always or cap capital gains and losses when you sell them. Rather, we combine them all at the end of the year. And if we have a net 1231 gain, then that net gain is taxed as if it's a capital gain. If there's a net loss, it's taxed as if it's an ordinary loss. 
And there is a recapture rule that if we've ever recognized the prior five years, a 1031 loss, then we have to, in the next five years, if we have any 12, net 1231 gains, we have to treat that as ordinary to recover what we originally paid out. What we originally picked up as an ordinary loss. Well, 1221, the capital gain section says specifically, a capital gain does not include an asset used in the taxpayer's trade or business. And so the tax court said, well, guys, 1234A says this applies to a right only if the asset in question is a capital asset. But this hotel building is not a capital asset. It's a 1231 asset. Taxpayer says, well, come on. We know it's normally going to be taxed as capital gain. And when Congress was passing this law, their reports were citing cases where gains, where these gains on sales of rights related to 1231 assets had been taxed as ordinary income, and they stated they were looking to reverse all of these cases. So it's clear Congress meant for this to be a capital gain. And the tax court said very clearly, doesn't matter. The law itself unambiguously answers this question. It's got to be a capital asset, and 1221 tells us clearly it's not one. And the 11th Circuit backed that up. Now, the 11th Circuit did note that this plain text reading will not necessarily always have to apply, and they specifically discussed what they called the monstrous result exception. And what they're saying is it has to be a result that is so far out of line that it would be just absolutely no way it could ever, ever, ever be correct, right? It's kind of like this issue, right? As was quoted by the court, while there is an absurdity exception to plain meaning rule, it is necessarily very narrow and only applies when a straightforward application of the text would comply a truly ridiculous, or to use Justice Story's word, monstrous outcome. And that is extraordinarily rare to use the example that started from here. If, in fact, and I know some people are going to tell me that, no, this was not unambiguous or the unambiguous text leads to the result that 2021-49 is invalid, okay, you can have that. You, we can try to argue that, and that's not my point of arguing this today. But if, if you accept that, as would be my position, 2021-49, the unambiguous result is that an owner who has living relatives of any of the relatives listed in 267C, you know, that control owner is not going to be able to claim the ERC on their own wages. If that is what the plain text says, it is not a monstrous result, which means it's outside the realm that Congress could ever have considered having this be a rule that anyone would ever consider passing something like this as a monstrous result. Because the problem is, why is not allowing the credit for the guy's child, you know, the owner's child, the owner's, you know, child, their parent, their brother, their sister, regardless of how much they work in the business and how important they are in the business, we clearly disallow that under this rule. Why would disallowing it for the owner be absurd? Seems like you know, Congress does disallow those sorts of things. It's not out of the line if you're disallowing relatives 
of the control owner, disallowing the control owner does not seem obviously something that would just be something that is so monstrous that any law that ever denied such a credit. Now, you know, as they said in the 1234 issue for the building, they said, no, it's not monstrous. You still got to keep seven. In this case, I think it was seven million dollars. You got to keep seven million dollars, and yeah, you paid a little bit. You paid a bit higher taxes than you would otherwise, but you still had money, significant money in your pocket. And people that get seven million dollars of income, you know, are otherwise that is ordinary income, otherwise are paying that level of tax. So this is not a monstrous result. A monstrous result would probably have been where, if you use that interpretation. These people would have had a $7 million gain, and it would have automatically resulted in a $40 million tax. That would probably meet the monstrous result theory. Right? So that one's not going to meet that text. So let's talk about how this rule works. Okay. As we say, an odd result is not sufficient to ignore a rule. And we can talk some about odd results because we've been down this road before. Right, we talk about an odd result is not sufficient. If you remember in late 2017 when Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in December of 2017, it became clear very, very early there was a major league problem with the text of the law. And it's a problem that many of you worked your way through the past few years and it didn't finally get retrofied, rectified, I should say, until last March in the CARES Act. Qualified Improvement Property. The committee reports for this program, the committee reports made it very clear that Qualified Improvement Property had a 15-year life and because of that 15-year life, Qualified Improvement Property would qualify for bonus depreciation because it was a class life of less than 20 years. So by definition, it qualifies for 100% bonus. And also it's listed over in Section 179. And it was supposed to also qualify for Section 179. Now the TCJA, remember they were cleaning up. We had three types of improvement property that all had little quirks, little differences. They were trying to clean it up and simplify it into one category which they did effective January 1st, 2020, or I should say January 1st, 2018. But what they did, they had to take the old language out. They were going to put in new language. Well, the new language said that qualified improvement property is any improvement made by the taxpayer to the interior portion of the building, which is non-residential real property. If such improvement is placed in service after the date such building was first placed in service. Now, we have a life assigned by Section 168 to non-residential real property. It is 39 years. Now, in the prior law, the other three categories all said they were non-residential real property. However, there was a, a more specific life definition for those other qualified leasehold improvement, qualified restaurant property, qualified real property that specifically said that they got a 15-year life. Okay. Congress, while they you know took out and they took out all that language because they had to, they put this one in, they also put in the cross-reference in section 179 that said that this property qualified as 179 property. 
but they forgot to put any special life in 168. So the plain language of the statute very, very clearly gave us a life, 39 years. And you couldn't even say it was implied. Now, if Congress hadn't put the 179 in, you might have said, well, qualified improvement property gets no gets treatment that's no different from just standard real property. That's wrong. You know, why was this in here? There needs to be some meaning to this. So then you might have been able to argue that we would need to go back to the stat, to the, you know, to basically to the reports and try to figure out what that meaning should have been. However, with 179 in there, this has a meaning. This is a piece of property that you could not otherwise use 179 on, but which you now can. So it had meaning. There was a rational meaning attached to it. Now, Congress did, I should say, the IRS did go back with recovery startup business wages, and Congress did kind of forget to tell us what those were going to be. But again, the IRS in that case, because obviously there must be some because they keep talking as if there is, IRS was willing to go back to the committee reports and kind of fill in the blanks there. But here the problem is there's a purpose for this, even if, you know, it might not be all the purposes Congress listed. Congress needed to go back and put this back in. As we know, we didn't actually get this fixed until the CARES Act. The CARES Act, when we finally got this whole thing fixed. Right, it came back in with the CARES Act. That was the deal. Now, this is a rule that has been set down by the U.S. Supreme Court, and this is where we talk about the reference here, which was in the uh, C.R.I. Leslie Court case. And what the C.R.I. Leslie Court case said was referenced back a Supreme Court case called Connecticut National Bank, uh, which is a 1992 case. Uh, and you can see, you know, the reference there, 503 U.S. 249, U.S. Supreme Court case, pages 253 to 254, is where this discussion comes in. In the opinion, the court said, we have stated time and again that courts must presume that a, that a legislature says in a statute what it means and means in the statute what it says there. And to continue on to explain this a bit further, the court goes immediately on and says, where the statute, words of a statute are unambiguous, then the first canon, which they talk about in the paragraph as the first canon is, we look to the text of a statute, the first canon of statutory interpretation becomes the last. The judicial inquiry is complete. You do not look elsewhere. You do not consider any other text or third-party items. And why that's important is, and the court in CRA Leslie, you know, came on and told us effectively the same thing, right? You know, the fact is, because they were arguing, well, the statute's unambiguous, but it's different, right? You know, and what the court said was, in a context such as we have here, this is the 11th Circuit and CRA Leslie, you know, where clear statutory text and even compelling evidence of a sub or extra textual intent, the former, the clear statutory text, must prevail over the latter, right? It is the ultimately the provisions of our laws rather than the principal content, rather than the principal context, or, or let's say, you know, the principal concerns of our legislators by which we are governed. Courts must presume, as we say, legislature says in the statute what it means 
and means in the statute what it says, quoting again the um, Connecticut National Bank case. And the 11th Circuit explains why this is true. As the court said, um, you know, a couple of reasons why we do this. As a formal matter, right, only the statutory text is law per the Constitution because only it was passed by both bodies of Congress and signed by the president. Even if you buy the congressional, okay, Congress looked at the report. The problem is the president signs the law, the statute, not the report. And the only thing the Constitution allows is for bills that are passed by Congress. There is no standing under the Constitution given for legislative reports, legislative intent, as something that would you know, become binding on Congress or binding on the courts. They're saying, no, the actual statute, right? And also, the court said, a, you know, as a practical matter, conscientious adherence to the statutory text best ensures that citizens uh, have fair notice of the rules that govern them. You don't need to go read. You know, It's not just, oh, I know the law says this, but see, there's this other document you didn't look at. It says just the opposite. So sorry, guys, that's not, what the, that, that's not really the law. It's this other document that's not in the statute, not in the U.S. Code. That's what this really means, tough luck. Nope, you can't play hide-and-seek with the law, generally. And it incentivizes Congress to write clear laws and keep courts within their proper lanes. So essentially, you look for clear, unambiguous text in a statute. Now, what does this mean for the employee retention credit? Let's go back and let's take a look at that issue we talked about a few weeks ago now. So let's talk about this thing. Okay. If you want to start talking about congressional reports, you can't do so because, as the Supreme Court said, Connect National Bank, if the actual statute, Section 2301 of the CARES Act, um, Section 3134 of the Internal Revenue Code for periods July 1st and later of this year, uh, which is where they moved it to, if that text, and when that, that including the text that that text references, because we considered the law as a whole, so if 2301, which references 51I1, which represents references 267C. If 51I1 and 267C clearly state that, you know, shares owned, if I'm the majority owner of the shares of the S-Corp, my brother is also considered to be a majority owner of the share of the S-Corp. And if that law then states that this list of relatives of any of these owners right, because it defines owners by 267C, if those are, you know, if any of those relatives' wages paid to them are barred, and that again gets to the problem that I am my brother's brother. Therefore, I am a brother of a majority owner, per how 267C considers a majority owner. Okay. Now, if that is unambiguous, doesn't matter what Congress intended. Congress needs to go back and revise the law. So before you can start talking, and I will ask anybody who starts talking to me about 2021-49 to tell me first their theory of ambiguity. What part, what words in the statute are ambiguous to you? 
right? What words are ambiguous, you know, and I would say that's not there. What usually people try to link to is, well, it just has a title that says relatives. And I said, I am a relative of an owner, right? It didn't say relatives of people that directly own stock only, right? It doesn't have any of those things. So again, ambiguity says relatives is ambiguous, but the statute resolves the ambiguity. Directly, self-contained, we don't go outside the statute. That's my argument. But maybe you want to argue that. Maybe you think that works. Fine. But that is the first thing you've got to defend. You've got to find the ambiguity, right? And again, I don't see how you get monstrous to work in this context. It's just not far enough out there. You know, we're not asking these companies to pay, you know, in addition, you know, on the owner's wages to go ahead and then pay five times that as additional payroll taxes. That's not what's happening in these contexts. So it's not a monstrous result. Once we've seen the ambiguity, then we can consider other sources. Those other sources include the notice itself, because you have to consider that and its reasoning. You also have to consider congressional intent, which, by the way, please do not bypass the PATH Act. And I will tell you that as far as I've been able to see, Nothing in the CARES Act ever directly addressed this. No committee reports for the CARES Act ever directly addressed how this would work. Usually the argument comes from people working back to when we first started Section 51 decades ago, and they'll try to build from reports from there. But then your problem is, if we're going to go through old reports, we also have those 2015 PATH Act reports that said flat out, Majority owners don't get the work opportunity tax credit. That's what Section 51 covers. So, you know, apparently meaning that, yeah, th this no living relative rule is there, although it doesn't directly cite that. Yeah, well, you know, what can I say? I would say if you have no living relatives, then, yeah, you get it because the statute, you know, has no way to bring you into it being a relative of somebody who's a majority owner, who's considered a majority owner. But that's a very specific rule going again from the statute. But if you argue for ambiguity, then you consider 2021-49, the congressional sources, and any other documents, and then that helps you to resolve ambiguity. What the courts have said more than once is congressional reports do not, congressional committee reports and other such documents cannot be used to create ambiguity. They cannot be used to prove there's ambiguity. When you're doing the ambiguity discussion, you need to find that ambiguity with the statute standing alone. Once that ambiguity has been discovered, then these become sources that courts will consider in line with other options to try and resolve that ambiguity, right, in whatever method we wish to. And as we discovered, and now we get this whole bit about congressional intent versus things in the IRB, the Chevron rule. And if it's a regulation, you get into the whole question about the whole Mayo Foundation decision from the Supreme Court that the IRS has a right to pick any reasonable interpretation uh, if a code section is ambiguous in a reg. Now, the level of deference allowed if it's not a reg, which notice 2120, 2149 is not a reg, that's a longer Chevron discussion, and it gets more interesting. But again, you have to go through that whole business. 
So as I said, you can't just start with a committee report. You've got to first show the ambiguity and then show why your thing is, is right, right? As I say, now, if you claim, as I've heard at least one presenter claim post-202149 who claims it's not right, if you claim the plain text of the statute says owners don't get it or owners do get it, then you should never mention congressional committee reports. They're irrelevant. If you need to look at committee reports to determine if the statute's ambiguous, you put the cart before the horse. A statute is or is not ambiguous, and only if it's ambiguous do we consult the committee reports. And then we have to consider other options. If the plain text of the statute says, as, as I said, I've heard at least one, uh, one, one, C, one CP presenter state it this way, then you don't talk about committee reports. They're irrelevant. Okay? As I said, congressional intent cannot create ambiguity, but it can help along with other sources, resolve any already existing ambiguity. That's the nature of its use. Now, if you're in this situation, let's say you had a client who is considering filing a ERC or has already filed an ERC claim. And in this case, right? And if on that original return or on the return that they want you to prepare, they want to claim the ERC on the salary of the controlling owner who has living relatives that are going to cause a problem to 67C, you have to, at minimum, advise the client that the position of the return previously filed or the position of this return is going against the IRS's stated position in the Internal Revenue Bulletin. And discuss with the client that that means it's probably far more likely that if the return is examined or the claim is examined in detail, that the IRS is likely not to accept the position unless you take them to court. You just raise the stakes. It's much, you know, their agents are not going to be keen on going against the IRB. So they're going to, it's going to take some time to get that fixed. So now you have to look back and try to figure out how to make that, you know, explain that to the client and then tell the client, you know, what you might want to do, including attaching disclosure to the form. Uh, disclosure A275, um, it doesn't necessarily change things dramatically, although I think it helps the taxpayer in getting away from a claim of negligence by giving the whole theory of their case, and that they obviously thought sought third-party advice, which really helps take 6662's basic negligence claim off the table. Substantial understatements only for income taxes, so we're going to be talking about kind of more basic negligence or ignoring rules, regulations, um, that kind of status. But remember, the preparer penalties still apply that same substantial authority, reasonable basis standard, substantial authority for non-disclosed positions, reasonable basis for all other positions. Uh, so you really can't sign the return. Or if you're just advising them what to do with their 941, you need to advise disclosure because you're probably going to be the preparer for that position, which means that you could face penalty even if the client doesn't, if the IRS manages to get tax, you know, manages to assess and the client concedes and pays the tax, you could still be subject to penalty. So be aware of that. As well, you should be aware, because I've had other people that represent cases and have been expert witnesses in cases where clients have raised this issue and they've had to pay out some nice big bucks uh, firms, including some rather large international firms, 
Um, the client definitely can hold you liable, even if your logic is perfect, even if your logic is great. There was clearly reasonable cause, you know, re if it was reasonable basis for the position. But if you didn't tell the client about this possibility, you know, that the IRS had ruled the other way and that, you know, it was going to make exams much more troublesome, expensive and long, if they got called on this, you may very well be held liable for any costs like that. And you may find the client filing complaints with state boards or with the IRS's, you know, Office of Professional Responsibility if you're an EA, or I guess with the state bar if you're a you're an attorney. So, you know, you probably need to make sure that you've talked this over and documented in writing with your client how this would work. Okay. Now, as I said, I'm not really saying, I'm saying, you know, if you, whatever position you take on 2021-49, which is the employee retention credit for people who are, you know, for wages paid to controlling owners, can we claim it? You just need to make sure that you've done this work. And remember that you first have to deal with the code. And if you, you know, and determine does the code itself as written and adopted by Congress, give us the answer. If that answer is yes, then we're done. To quote Justice Thomas from Connecticut National Bank, that's end, close everything, go home, stop looking. If that is not your answer, if you do decide there's ambiguity and you can point out that ambiguity in the sentence, in the sentences, then, then and only then you can start considering other sources outside the statute, at which point the congressional reports, committee reports, would be just one source of such information that you would consider. And 2021-49 IRB notices are ones as well. So we work that way. Well, this has been Current Federal Tax Developments for this week. So hopefully you, you know, hopefully next week we'll actually get some developments so we talk about basic development sorts of things. Uh, don't forget, I do uh, look in on the um, Connect sites for Arizona, New, New Jersey, um, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington Society CPAs. Also take a look at the Idaho Society's uh, site that uh, talks about issues there, you know, that they have their discussion group there. Um, also, if you have any questions, email me, edzollers at currentfortexhelpless.com. you have any questions, comments on the issues. Uh, otherwise, like I said, Congress will be back in town. There'll probably be a lot of issues, a lot of stories, a lot of people on both sides, you know, trying to raise various political points. So keep your eye on the law. Uh, don't don't worry much about, you know, the supposed end of the world or nirvana that's going to happen if this passes. Because I'm sure you're going to hear that either that both are true. And I suspect the results will be somewhere in the middle of the end of the world or nirvana. Neither nirvana nor the world ending is likely to happen uh, after we figure out what happens to this law. But take a look, and then we'll try to figure out how that law works and talk to you about it. And we'll talk to you about any other nice developments as everybody gets back in back to work after they took their August vacations. And talk next week about the current developments going on in current federal tax developments. <music>